It's a great blessing to be back together this afternoon. Uh, I want to say before I begin the study of the afternoon uh, that I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunity to have been here and for every kind word that you've spoken and word of encouragement that you've spoken toward me. And uh, it's been a great blessing to spend time with you and to rekindle some relationships and maybe build some others. And uh, didn't know it, but uh, after being with Matt and Connie for a while, I figured out we know all the same people. And that was very bizarre because uh, they're people that I haven't even thought about in maybe 20 years. But um, small world, I suppose. We're going to finish our series of studies this afternoon with the subject of patience. And uh, maybe you're thinking, what on earth does patience have to do with holiness? And, and I think you'll see the connection as we get into our study this afternoon at looking at patience a little bit more closely than perhaps we have before. We're going to read from James chapter 1, or James chapter 5 rather, verses 10 and 11 as we begin our study this afternoon. James in writing says, take my brethren the prophets. And when he says, take my brethren, he's saying, behold these men or think about these prophets. Because he said, they have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So James says, I want you to think about for a moment, consider these prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. There were people that lived through hardship, that lived through suffering, that endured uh, a lot of difficult things in their life. And he says, I want you to consider those people for a moment. And one of the people he mentions here is Job. And uh, the word that's translated patience, where it says uh, that they have spoken, for example, of suffering, affliction, and patience, is actually a different word than is translated patience in the next verse. They're very closely related, but they're also a little different. And so we're going to do a little bit of word study just uh, to start out our study, because I know sometimes when I think of patience, I think of just this idea of waiting, the ability to wait. And, and really, when you look at the biblical concept of patience, it runs a little deeper than that. The first word I want to look at is the word, uh, I don't know how to say that, so we'll just pretend I know how to pronounce that word. Uh, but it means an endurance or a constancy. And uh, I'm going to get a little wordy for a West Texas boy just for a minute and then slow things down, but uh, endurance means a continuance, a state of lasting or duration, a bearing or suffering, a continuing under pain or distress without resistance or without sinking or yielding the pressure. You know what I think of when I read all this? I think of what a word that we use or words that we use, mental toughness, mental toughness. That strength of character that causes us to be able to endure a difficult situation without quitting. Okay? Constancy is very similar to that, a fixedness or firmness of a mind, persevering resolution. Uh, it has more to do with the idea of determination. Uh, but patience is not just the ability to wait or the ability to not uh, exact vengeance, even though uh, patience does have uh, an element of that. We see that in the other word that's translated patience, um, our second definition. And just to summarize this, I want you to think of patience as this. It's a, it's a focus and a determined mind and a resolve to continue through difficulty and suffering without quitting. 
<clears throat> the second idea of patience that's mentioned here is, trans, uh, is defined rather as a forbearance or fortitude. And forbearance has to do a lot with how we deal with each other. Forbearance is long-suffering, a command of temper, a restraint of passions, or we might say uh, being able to control our emotions. He says it's an indulgence toward those who injure us, lenity, like being lenient with someone, um, a delay of resentment or punishment. So in this case, yes, it is. It's that waiting. It's that uh, not being hasty to seek vengeance. It's that ability to take suffering from others. Not standing in the right spot, apparently. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Fortitude is that strength or firmness of mind or soul which enables a person to encounter danger with coolness and courage or to bear pain or adversity without murmuring, depression, or despondency. The reason I wanted to read all of this is because patience is a little bit deeper than just having the ability to wait and not get in a hurry. There's a word that sportscasters started using several years ago, and the first time I heard it, I thought, what was that? <laughs> I didn't even think, that's not even a word, is it? This guy said, that guy right there's got stick to and I thought, stick to is that even a word? But, you know, I thought, well, I know what he means by that, so it must be a word, because he just meant, this person is very determined, uh, they're very focused, they're very driven, that's a person, that it's, it's the guy that on the basketball court that's always diving for every loose ball, that's always blocking everybody out, that's outrunning everybody, outplaying everybody. It, it's that idea of this is a very determined person. And I think that sort of uh, captures this idea of patience because it's, it's not just that we're able to just sit there and take it, but it's that we have a strength about us to be able to endure these things without quitting. And the first thing I want to say about patience is we all need it. We all need patience. Whether you uh, feel like you're in a good place in patience or you've grown in your patience, we still all need patience. And sometimes our level of patience is challenged by the, the, the different adversities that we experience um, throughout different ages of life. And so whether you're young, whether you're old, however you consider that, whether you're in the middle, we all need patience. And if we're going to have patience, we need to accept something. We need to accept that difficult times, while unpleasant, can be a tremendous blessing in our walk with Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 from the New King James says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. I thought that was New King James, but that's not New King James, that's King James. Maybe I've got New King James later. The idea here is that tribulation works patience. Just like we talked about godliness is not a bottle that God pours on our head, neither is patience. And if you're going to pray for patience, you might be careful. Because <laughs> it's not just going to come in waves. It's not just going to be something that God's going to give you an injection of patience and then you're just going to wake up one day and you're going to be patient. He's going to give you opportunities to learn patience, to build character through tribulation and experience. James 1.3, which is somewhat similar to what we just read in Romans, says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now listen to this phrase. But let patience have its perfect work. I want to focus our attention on a moment, uh, for a moment, on this thought. Let patience have its perfect work. And uh, maybe you've heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it because I think it really illustrates this idea. There was a man who was out observing nature. Uh, 
And as he was walking through the forest, he came upon a cocoon that was hanging from a tree limb. And he stopped for a few moments and he was watching because he could see some movement inside this cocoon. And, and there was a very small hole. And he thought, oh, there's, there's a butterfly that's fixing to come out of this cocoon. So he sat there and he watched. And he watched and he watched and he watched. And, and he finally just got tired of waiting. And it just wasn't happening fast enough. So he took out his pocket knife and he very surgically and carefully removed the little, what it looks like a stick that's hanging from that tree where it, where it connects to it. And he laid this cocoon down on this tree stump and he, he began to very carefully cut the seam of this so that this butterfly could come out of this cocoon. And he had it in his hand and he was looking at it, looking at the beauty of it. And he, he set it down on the stump and he, he just thought, any moment this thing's going to fly off. You know what happened? The butterfly didn't fly off. In fact, he crippled it. He didn't cut it with the knife. He didn't even touch it with the knife, but he crippled this creature. Because what he didn't realize was it was God's design that this struggle that he couldn't possibly stand to watch was necessary. It was that struggle that would make this creature change into what God wanted it to be. And he stopped the struggle. You know why he stopped the struggle? Because he couldn't endure to watch it struggle. You know, we do that with people in our lives. I have. I've watched people that I love struggling with something. And you know what I've thought within myself? I love that person. I can't stand to watch them struggle. And I've stopped their hurt. And I crippled them. I've done that with my kids before. I've watched them hurting. I've watched them struggle. And I've stopped their pain and struggle. But you know what? They could have learned a very valuable lesson from that affliction but I didn't allow patience to have its perfect work and friends I'm not saying every time you suffer affliction that's God's design or that God has somehow looked at you and said you know what they need in their life is a little suffering but I will tell you this that suffering is a part of God's plan that he would allow suffering in our life and he would allow us to struggle and it would change us into what he wants us to be suffering is necessary and suffering can be a good thing. Paul learned this himself in life. You know, we, we sometimes may mistakenly think that, well, Paul had revelation from God, so he just knew everything. Well, some things were just learned. They were learned through his experiences. And this case, this instance where he talks about that is in 2 Corinthians 12 and 7. And Paul talked about the fact that he had been blessed with an abundance of revelations and had been caught up to the third heaven and seen things other people had not seen. And, and, you know, he says, you know, I could have boasted about that. I could have really been exalted in my own mind because of that. Because why? God chose me. He didn't choose you. He didn't choose you. He chose me for that. And he says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And he said, concerning the thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he told me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, you know, Paul was very much like I would be in the midst of suffering. What is my prayer? God, make it stop. Stop the hurt. Stop the suffering. I don't want to deal with this. Take it away. And he said, I prayed that. I prayed three times. I pleaded with the Lord that he would take this away from me. And you know what God's answer was? His answer was no. 
I'm not going to take that away from you. I'm not going to remove that thorn. He said, in fact, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, look, I've given you what you need. My grace is enough. The blessings I've given you are sufficient. Now, would you like that answer? I might not. (laughs) But it's interesting to me that Paul didn't say, well, that's not fair, God. (laughs) That's not fair. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to take this away from me. Do you not care? That wasn't his attitude, though. In fact, Paul said this. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what he said? I'm not going to boast in the abundance of the revelations. I'm not going to boast in myself. But he said, you know what? If it's going to take suffering in my life to turn me into the person that God wants me to be, if that's the way that I have to be strengthened, then bring on the sufferings. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, he says, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. He realized that even though he didn't want this thorn in the flesh, maybe it was going to be a good thing. Maybe this was what it was going to take for him to be strong. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The Bible says it is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't. I don't like that. I, I wish it was another way I'd learn, learn God's statutes. I wish I could learn another way than suffering. But, you know, the truth is, it's not the good times that really teach us the best lessons in life. It's the bad times. It's the hard times. Those stick in our mind. We don't forget them. Why? Because it was unpleasant. And it, maybe it left scars. Maybe it was something that really stuck out in our mind. But it was a teachable moment. And it's good for us to be afflicted, even if our society says it's not. It is. It's a good thing. Another thing we need to recognize is that patience leads us to hope. And that may be a a strange thought on the surface. But going back to Romans chapter 5, he says, Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. To really kind of build on this thought, I want to go over to the book of Hebrews for a moment and read a, a couple of verses from there where hope is talked about. Here the writer says that by two immutable things, that's things that are unchangeable, he says, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. I want to stop for a moment and really kind of analyze what he says here, especially as it relates to the idea of hope. He says, you know, the fact that God is incapable of lying and we can trust that his purpose and promises are true, That gives us a a strong comfort. It gives us great encouragement. And he said, the people that that gives comfort to are the people who have fled for refuge. Years ago, my dad and I was about probably about 13, and we were roofing Red Dukes' house. And he had those old stubborn T-lock shingles. I'll never forget that. That was one of the first roofs I ever did. 
And that day, the weather forecast had said there was going to be severe thunderstorms. And uh, I thought, good, <laughs> we'll have an excuse to get off the roof. So we got up on the roof and we're working. And, and where I live, if the thunderstorm's coming, well, you know it. You know it for a long time because there's, there's nothing between us and the western part of the world. I mean, you just look out there, you watch the thing build. And so early in the day, I started going, hey, Dad, look, there's thunderstorms building. And he goes, yeah, I know, keep working. And then they got bigger and bigger, and I said, boy, those, those look intense, don't they? And he said, yeah, but they're not here, so just keep working. And uh, later on, they started getting close. We started hearing thunder, and he said, uh, I know, just keep working. And then they got closer, and it started raining, and I'm like, Dad, it's raining. And he goes, yeah, but we can finish this side, so keep working. And then just a few minutes later, it started hailing on us. And my dad goes, get off the roof. <laughs> and we both got off the roof. We went down the ladder really fast, threw the ladder down in the yard, and we ran in the house. You know what we did? We fled for refuge. And life's that way. Sometimes you see it coming. You see the storm coming, and you panic. Or you look for an excuse to go flee for refuge. But I'll tell you, sometimes you have to find refuge because it's just too heavy and too hard and, and, and you worry about your own safety. And I want to ask you a question. What's your refuge? Difficult times are coming. What's your refuge? You know where some people go? They go to the lake. When I was in East Texas, I realized something. There was an idol I never thought would be an idol of man. You know what it was? It was Lake Fork. And uh, the guys around that lived around me would talk about, Sunday, I'm going to church. You know where they were going? To the lake. To go fish. And that was their escape from the problems of life. You know where some people's refuge is? In a bottle. They start feeling the hailstones of life hit them. They start feeling the pain. They crawl inside a bottle and they hide there. It's a refuge. Some people turn to pleasure, some to recreation, some to music. The world offers a lot of different refuges, and I'm going to tell you, every one of them are futile because they're not real. And friends, I'll tell you, there's one thing that is going to help you have the fortitude, the strength to get through affliction in life, and that is the hope and the reliability of the promises of God in Christ Jesus, and that's it. And you know what happens? Times are good. Times are great. The, the bank account is just right. Our family is just right. Our health is just right. And then something happens, and what we go... Well, I have not been being spiritually minded. <laughs> and it rocks you. And it's in those tribulations that all of a sudden our mind gets directed back toward heaven. And he says, you know, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Sometimes life is a slow rain, sometimes it's a hailstorm, and sometimes it's a flash flood that will come and just carry you away if you're not careful. And friends, if you forget about the hope, if you forget where we're headed, you forget about the finish line, you're going to be swept away by those storms. But if you can focus on the bigger picture, 
you'll have an anchor and it'll hold you steadfast and sure. Paul said in Romans 8 and 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He said, you know what? If we could just peel back the curtain just a little bit and get a glimpse into the glory that awaits us, these problems that sometimes are seemingly mountains in our life would seem small. Oh, they're real problems. Oh, they, they may be difficult to endure. But he says, you know what? There's something better that's waiting for us, something much greater than the problem itself. And I, I just think if we could really see the blessings that God has prepared for those that love him, we would probably feel foolish about the times we murmur and we complain about these small inconveniences in life. Patience is not just suggested, it's commanded. Now I realize we all have different personalities and with those personalities some people are naturally more patient than others. But nobody is just naturally patient. We don't just uh, come into the world and we're patient. And even though we all are different in that area, God expects all of his people to be patient. It's a commandment of God. And if we're going to be long-suffering, that implies us being willing to suffer. Job chapter 14 and verse 1 says, Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. My stepmother and I used to have a lot of conversations. And one of those conversations uh, that was very frequent ended up with me saying, Well, this is not fair. And she would say, Life's not fair. And then you die. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I hated that. <laughs> I hated when she told me that. And one day I was reading Job 14, 1 and 2. And you know what I realized that Job said here is, Life is not fair. Then you die. And I thought, she was right. This whole time she was right. Life's not fair. Then you die. God never said it'd be fair. He didn't say everything would be great. He said, life's not fair. And then you die. That's life. And it doesn't do us any good to murmur and say it's not fair and complain about it. We just have to roll with the punches. And understand that we have come into a kingdom. We've been called to live a certain way. And with that comes affliction. 1 Peter chapter 4 and 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now, I asked you a question earlier, what does patience have to do with holiness? There's a lot of times that people come out of the waters of baptism and they have an unrealistic expectation of what is about to occur in their life. They think, well, now I'm a child of God and nothing bad is ever going to happen. And the first time something bad happens, they go, well, nothing's different. And they just quit. Jesus spoke about people like this in the parable of the sower. He said, those that are on the stony ground, he said, that's those who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But he said that when tribulation and trial comes because of the word, he said, immediately they fall away. Do you hear the word immediately in that twice? That's the opposite of patience. That's impulsiveness. That's 
We'd say flying by the seat of your pants. It, patience is a very important component because what happens is when we're not patient, when we don't have strength, the tribulation comes and we just give up, we quit trying. Hebrews 12 and 2 tells us that Jesus had a willingness to suffer. Did Jesus enjoy the suffering that he went through? The Bible says he despised the shame. He despised the shame. Do you think it was easy for Jesus being made into the very thing that he had a hatred for? To be made sin on the cross? To be mocked by the people that he loved, that he had come to save? Do you think that was pleasant? It wasn't. But he was willing to suffer. And why was he willing to suffer? For the joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? It was you. And it was me. His resurrection, his being alive, was not dependent upon his ability to endure, his willingness to endure, but your salvation was. That was the joy that, had, that Jesus looked toward that helped him to endure the cross. You know, long-suffering doesn't just imply being willing to suffer affliction, but it also implies being patient with people. The reason why I drive very slowly in traffic is because if I don't, I will need Jerrica to take my blood pressure. <laughs> I get very anxious. Very nervous when I'm in thick traffic. And I used to get in such a hurry. And, uh, you know, I didn't say things that were cursing or anything like that. But I realized I had a problem with being patient with people in traffic. Because I think everybody should drive a certain way. And if you don't drive that way, then you're just wrong. And I'm going to tell you about it. Even though you don't know who I am and can't hear me through my window, I'm going to tell you about it. And I just blow up. I get all mad and my heart would beat fast and then that person would drive away and I'd never see him again. You may think, well, that's not that big a deal. They didn't even know. Well, it was a big deal to me, but I'll tell you what's a bigger deal to me is when people that are in my life frustrate me and I bite their head off. And you know why sometimes I'm a little bit more apt to do that because I know they love me and they'll forgive me later is that fair to them first Thessalonians 5 and verse 14 now we exhort you brethren warn those who are unruly comfort the faint-hearted uphold the weak be patient with all that even means the bad Dallas driver you be patient with every person you be patient with all Ephesians 4 and 2 says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I love this set of verses. And there's some great truths in this, but I'll tell you one of the greatest truths is right in the middle of the screen there, bearing with one another in love. You know what the word bearing actually means? It means to put up with each other. And if you're at my house for very long, my wife will at some time in our conversation say, See what I have to put up with? And she's not talking about the kids. <laughs> She's talking about me. Well, you know what? I had to put up with her too. And we put up with each other. And you know why? We made a decision to put up with each other when we got married. And whether you know it or not, when you became a child of God, you made a decision to put up with everybody that's here. You made, you made a decision to put up with all of your brothers and sisters. And it's, 
very discouraging sometimes that we will get cross with one another over something that's seemingly trivial. We'll even sever relationships over things that really aren't that important because we think our feelings are more important. But I want you to notice the last thing he says. He says, bearing with one another in love. Now listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know why I use the word endeavoring? Because peace and unity don't just happen. It's something we have to work toward. And that means my feelings, while maybe they're important, maybe my spouse's feelings are important, maybe my kids' feelings are important, they're not as important as unity in the body of Christ. And we can't sacrifice brotherly love and sacrifice unity on the altar of our opinion and our feelings. Some things just aren't worth the battle. The Bible says the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his his glory to overlook a transgression. See, we think that strength and might and power is when a man won't take it. And somebody hits him and what's he do? He doubles his fist up and fights him. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that true strength is when a man can be patient and forgiving. In fact, the Bible says he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. What's the population of Denton, Michael? Don't know? 100,000? 100,000 people. How, how mighty of a person do you think it would take to come in today and overthrow the entire city of Denton? I bet there's a few firearms in these homes around here. Buddy, if you're coming, you better bring an army, Right? You better be a mighty man to overthrow a city. And God says, you know who's a mightier man than a man who can come in and overthrow a city? A man that is in control of his feelings and emotions. That's real might. Not the might of strength that lifts up the heavy weight. Not the might of strength that doubles up the fist. But the might of a man, the true testimony of a man's strength is on the inner man. A man that is in control of his inner man. As we wind down our study this afternoon, I want to think about not just the prophets this afternoon, but I want to think about the ultimate example of suffering, affliction, and patience. And friends, that was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the perfect example of endurance. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When I ran track, coach said, uh, I like to high jump. That's what I wanted to do. I high jump, long jump, and triple jump. And coach said, well, that's fine, but if you're going to do that, you're also going to do some running events. And I said, well, I don't want to do running events. He said, I don't care. You're going to anyway. (laughs) And so I... He goes, well, which ones do you want to do? I was like, I'll do the 100 and the 200. And he's like, really? And I was like, yep, that's the ones I want to do. And the reason I wanted to do those is because they shoot the gun, and then 11 or 12 seconds later in the 100, you're done. You walk over, you catch your breath, you go sit down and wait for your next event. It was easy. You just run real hard, real fast, and, and you're done. I talked to you a little bit about my cross-country days, and I'll tell you the reason why uh, I was not a good runner in cross-country is because I was – 
Well, I was weak. <laughs> I was a wimp. That was my problem. Because the entire time I would run a race, the only thing I could think about is, man, it's really hard to breathe right now. And man, my side really hurts. And man, my legs are cramped. My feet hurt. Man, they're getting small. Man, I'm... It was always the problems that kind of consumed me while I was doing endurance race. I remember one time, though, we were out at Old Mobiti, <laughs> out by the jail, and we were running in a cross-country competition. And uh, I don't know what got into me that day. And uh, I ended up coming in about 10th place that day. And since I was usually 10th from last, that was really good for me. And I, I beat my best time by like five minutes. I mean, it was a good day for me. It was 22 minutes or something like that. I ran three miles. I was trucking. And I got over the finish line, and I walked over, and there was Coach, and I thought, man, he's going to be so happy, and he was mad. And I thought, man, what's the deal? <laughs> and he looked, he, I walked over to him, he goes, you haven't even been trying, have you? You don't even care. And I thought, you're right. I haven't even been trying. I had no patience. When we went and practiced, I didn't run. He'd drive the bus down the road. I'd walk. Then I'd get up on top of the hill. I'd see the bus up there. Oh, time to run. Life is not a sprint. There's going to be pain. There's going to be discomfort. And there's going to be times when you want to stop and walk, and then get off the track. But Jesus didn't. He didn't quit. He could have. He could have stopped at any time. He could have just said, I'm done. He could have called for the angels. They'd have came down. Everything would have been over. He'd have been done. But he didn't quit. And here's what he says. Looking unto Jesus. You know why that day I ran my best time and ran my best race because it was that day and that day alone that when I raced I wasn't thinking about the pain the difficulty I was thinking about the finish line I'm gonna get there and I just kept going and going and going friends that's what you got to do when hard times come you got to look toward the finish line you got to look toward the Savior he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him. Friends, as we close, I want to consider Jesus. And he says, you consider him. Why? So you don't become weary and discouraged. So you don't quit. Think about Jesus. And I don't want to go back to the cross. I want to go to the moments before the cross. Because the truth is, we're all going to suffer in life, and we don't need to wait for the suffering to come and identify it. We need to be prepared for suffering in life. And that's what Jesus did. He knew it was coming, and so what did he do? He prepared himself. In Luke 22 and verse 41, the Bible says of Jesus, and as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father... If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I want to notice four things from this account of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
that Jesus did to prepare himself for the suffering, you know what the first thing he did was? He isolated himself from the world and he prayed. You know, sometimes when people suffer, they just isolate themselves. They go crawl in a hole, they go crawl in a cave, and they sh just shut out the world. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus went and spent time alone with the Father. Just like he taught his disciples to do. To go into your closet and pray. You know what the second thing he did? Was he prayed for God's will to be done. You know, when Paul prayed about this, the thorn in the flesh, it wasn't God's will. But you know what Paul did? He accepted God's will. He accepted it. He prayed three times. God gave him an answer. He accepted it. Jesus did the same. Jesus said, if there's any other way, if, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we've got to accept that maybe it's not God's will that the suffering stop. James says in James 4 and 3, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your love. Sometimes it's just our desire. We want it to stop, but maybe that's not God's will. Well, friends, we've got to accept God's will. Go ahead, ask Him. Talk to Him about your cares and your concerns and your worries and talk to Him about the pain you're going through. But if He gives you the answer, it's not going to stop, then accept it and go on. We have to accept God's will. You know, the third thing that Jesus did that might seem kind of bizarre on the surface is he accepted help from others. Sometimes in our pride when we're suffering, we just want to go, you know what, I don't need your help, I got this. <laughs> Can you imagine the audacity of angels, an angel coming to Jesus and strengthening him? You know who that was? <laughs> Jesus could have said, why are you here? <laughs> Didn't I create you? <laughs> do you not know who I am? I'm the creator. I can speak the winds and waves. I can do anything. But that's not what he did. And you know why he didn't do that? Because the Father sent the angel. Because Jesus needed help. He needed help. He needed encouragement. He needed strengthening in that moment of difficulty. The Bible says, Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ." There's no virtue in trying to beat tribulation alone. Why do we think that we have to do that? Do we accept help when it's offered? You know, the wisdom that's given to us by Solomon says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. And the problem is sometimes we lay there in our problems in our tribulation and we go, well, I can't get up, I can't give up. And somebody's got their hand up and we go, oh, you just need to go home. You just need to leave me alone. I'll get it when I'm ready. That's pride. That's all that is. If two lie down together, they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? You know one of the coldest feelings in life is feeling like you have to deal with every problem in your life alone. Nobody understands. And there's nobody there to help. That's a cold feeling. 
God has given us a family in Christ to encourage us, to help us when we're down, to help pull us out of those times. We have to accept help. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Friend, there's strength in numbers. But alone, sometimes we're weak. I want to go back to James chapter 5 where we started. And, and I want to remind you that in verses 10 and 11, he introduces to us the idea of suffering affliction and of patience. And that's the context of what we're about to read in James 5. So he talks about suffering, he talks about affliction, and he says this. Is anyone among you suffering? He says, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. So there's two things in there, two conditions. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing psalms. And then he says this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, admittedly, on the surface of this, when you're reading this and you see the word sick, you know what my mind goes to? Physical sickness, physical ailment. But you know, what's interesting is the word that's translated sick here, most of the time, doesn't mean physically sick at all. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about uh, those that were abusing the communion and some that weren't tearing for others. And he said, because of this, many are sick among you. They were spiritually sick. The second word that's translated sick also doesn't mean physically sick. It actually means tired or weary. It's the same word that we just read in Hebrews 12 and 3 where he says, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. The word wearied there, discouraged. And I don't believe this is about physical, miraculous healing at all, but rather about endurance. And I'll tell you that this hits home with me because there's been times in my life when I have been suffering and I've prayed. And I've prayed. And I've prayed. But the reality was I was too weak. I was sick. And it wasn't getting better. And I wasn't being encouraged. And I didn't feel like I was being forgiven. And I tell you, it wasn't because I didn't trust in God. I was just so weak spiritually. And I remember when I quit living the life I was living and I came back and I started going back to church my grandfather walked up to me and he said he said Ian we would like for you to start helping with the services of the church but he said you know given some of the decisions that you've made we really think it would be good for you to go up before the church and make a confession and you know what I did I got upset I thought really I mean, I've been living the best life I've ever lived for a year. I've been, living in, I've been living the change. And you want to tell me I have to go up before the church? That was my attitude. One night I was in Allison, Texas, and Mark Parkhurst was preaching a meeting. And I'll tell you, I was emboldened that evening to go up before the church. And I got about halfway up the, the aisle here, and Mark stuck his hands out. And I'm going to tell you, I just lost it. <laughs> I just lost it. And I realized something. I was proud. And I was mistaken. I needed that. 
Was it required? Maybe not, but I needed it. Because I was weak and I was sick inside. Even though I was telling myself I wasn't, there was an assurance that I gained that night. There was a comfort that I gained tonight. Why? Because I accepted help. Friends, you've got shepherds here. You know what they're for? (laughs) They're to watch for your souls. To help you when you're down. To help you when you're discouraged. That's the work of a shepherd. They're not just watching the sheep, feeding the sheep. They're binding up wounds. They're helping the afflicted. If you're afflicted, you don't have to go through that alone. You don't have to keep feeling like you have to fight this battle alone. Bring it to the Lord. You know, that's what we really see with what Jesus did here. Jesus understood something. He understood that strength does not necessarily come from within. It comes from above. Where did he take his problems? He took them to the Father. And then he accepted the Father's help. And as his feelings intensified, his prayers intensified. There was a time in the life of King David where uh, he was in about as bad a situation as I guess a guy could be in. I mean, he was run out of his own country, run away from his wife and his family, and he got to such a bad spot, he was actually living with the Philistines. Can you imagine having to live with the Philistines? And it came to this time where these Philistines were going off to battle, and David had uh, several hundred men that were under him, and they got out and they rode off to battle with the Philistines. The, Lord of the, Philist- the lords of the Philistines started going, uh, Hey, has anybody else noticed that uh, Israel's champion is riding out to battle with us? <laughs> and so they, they went back to the king and they said, We don't want this guy here. You need to send him away. He is not going to go fight with us. And uh, the king walked over and he told David, he said, Look, you've, you've been good to me the whole time you've been with me. But he said, These people don't want you here and, and I'm sorry, you need to leave. And so they did. David and his men went back to the city that David lived in, in the city that he was over, Ziklag. And they got there. And when they got there, they realized that some raiders had come in and stolen everything, carried away their wives and kids. And in the midst of all of that, David's men, his only men, his only true friends, said, you know what we need to do? We need to kill this guy because it's all his fault. Who did he have? He didn't have anybody. The Bible says, now David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, David didn't say, well, I'm all alone, there's nobody around, there's no help to be found. David remembered, strength is from above. And even when you feel like everybody's against you and that you're all alone and you're in the worst position you can be in, I'm going to tell you the only place to go is to God. Friends, do you need strengthening this afternoon? Do you need help? Well, don't come to me because I'm just a man. But friends, don't leave here weak and sick. Come to the Father and ask for His blessings and let Him help you and let us strengthen you. 
We will go to the Father and we'll pray with you and for you. Come now. Have a seat as we stand and we sing.